0: We are, it's more than just a champ. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode 18. Of Lion Legacy. Ross, this is quite exciting as we have a new partner coming on board. Not only do we have the Daily Collegian, but we also have Lion's Pride as we think about reminiscing about our great times, our guest great times at Penn State. We're fortunate to have Lion's Pride support. I think everyone remembers and hopefully has visited their shop downtown right across the street on College Avenue from old maine and just a perfect partnership right as you think about sharing those penn state memories no better way than to display whether it be a t-shirt whether it be a hat home decorations and you know they've got a great collection as well of penn state apparel not only just like traditional blue and white but i would say something different too in the mix so if you're looking for a gift for your friend, your family, and even for yourself, we certainly encourage you to go visit lions-pride.com. And Ross, I know you've got quite a bit of gear from Lions Pride as well.
1: I think that's uh, a given, right? As Penn Staters, we just tend to accumulate a whole drawer of Penn State t-shirts and gear. And even though you have enough, uh, there really actually never is enough. Even before the partnership, in all honesty, when we would visit – Dear old state, I would make it a point to go down to Lions Pride and check out what they had. They always had really cool Nike gear and like like the good stuff. If you need, needed like a nice like half zip shirt for the fall or you wanted like a nice pair of uh, shorts or a nice sweatshirt, like that's what they have. They have the quality apparel. So definitely was one of my favorite shops beforehand. And of course, you know, still is. So shout out to Lions Pride. It's a nice partnership we have there with them.
0: Awesome. And tell us about this week's uh, guest.
1: Yeah, we spoke with Ashlyn Sparrow. She's the assistant director at University of Chicago's Weston Lab. She's a video game developer, but not the video games that you would think, right? She doesn't work for the company that makes, uh, I don't know, Fortnite or Madden or whatever's popular with the kids. But the Weston Lab there at U of Chicago uh, develops video games for social impact. So she's going to tell us what that means, what her background is. She graduated with a degree in IST. And she's going to tell us how she got into video game development, what it means to work on developing games that are meant for education and social influence. So we're going to get into a really fun conversation with Ashlyn. Again, super impressive. With that, we're going to hit the play button and uh, start the game.
0: All right. Let's welcome Ashlyn Sparrow, 2010 Penn State graduate, Information Sciences and Technology Design and Development with a minor in security risk and analysis. After Penn State, Ashlyn went on to get her master's in entertainment technology from Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Madeira in Portugal. Ashlyn is now the assistant director of the Weston Game Lab at the University of Chicago. Throughout her career, she has helped create numerous games as well as presented and been published on many topics about game design and its sociocultural impact. We're very excited to have you on, Ashlyn. Welcome to Lion Legacy.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, you know, when we started this podcast, Ross and I thought about all the really hot and growing industries, and certainly gaming is on top of that list. And I got to admit, we thought Roblox, Electronic Arts, 2K, Activision Blizzard. But then luckily we stumbled upon you and you're at the Western Game Land. And we thought this is very different and quite an interesting angle. So can you share with us about the lab? as well as your role there?
2: Absolutely. So the Weston Game Lab is pretty new. We've only been open for about two years. The first year was before COVID, and then COVID, of course, changed uh, a couple things. we're really focused on is this idea of experimental games, that games can be used to solve certain problems, but you can also use them as a way to think through and make new problems and really use this as a jumping point to think about social change in multiple different ways. And so I am the assistant director of the lab, and I work alongside many faculty from different divisions. I run a bunch of events there. I work closely with students to teach them game design. I wear many hats, ultimately.
1: And also, Ashlyn, tell us a little bit more about how you worked your way uh, through to uh, Western and Game.
2: So, It really started after I got my master's in entertainment technology. I was ultimately looking for a job. And like many of the game studios that you've mentioned, I was really interested in working in industry, but one of my professors at the University of Madeira sent me a job description at UChicago to be a game designer at this lab called Game Changer Chicago. I had no idea what this was. I had no idea about UChicago as a university. I am from Pennsylvania. And so, well, my mom actually went to school at uh, Ball State in Indiana. So she's like, oh, Chicago, it's so good. And I'm like, whatever, mom, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> there was this moment where, okay, I could try and work industry. I was also applying for a job at the NSA. Um, Really interested in the intersection of using game design uh, to think about cyberterrorism um, and how to prevent that. But there was something about working at a small lab at a university because there might be something that I'll learn there that I might never learn anyplace else. And so I, I just took a leap of faith. And managed to end up here in Chicago and worked at that lab for five years where I was working on games around public health and sexual reproductive health. So working with public health researchers to think about how to create games around condom usage or how to increase uh, young women's knowledge about different birth control methods or even thinking about tobacco usage and how tobacco companies market their products to communities. So I worked primarily on board games and card games, working primarily on the south and west sides of Chicago with black and brown youth to really get them to start understanding what we call the social determinants of health, all the different aspects of, of health that are negative for these communities and trying to think about how games can actually make those changes and make those shifts.
0: So can you go a little bit deeper in terms of the game on reproduction and what was that game like and maybe some of the other games that you've worked on?
2: Absolutely. So an example of the games that I worked on, for instance, I have a game called The Test. And so this is a game focused primarily on HIV and the spread of HIV in the LGBTQIA community. We were primarily focused on Black and Brown men who have sex with men and trying to understand, well, what prevents this community from going out and getting HIV tests. In order to actually do that, we don't wanna just go and create a game without actually talking to anyone in the community. So what we first have to do is we have to go out and find the spaces that they are in, whether that's the clinics that they go to, or the social spaces that they're hanging out at, right? Whether it's bars or clubs and interviewing them and asking them general questions like, oh, tell us about HIV testing or tell us about all the issues you've had with healthcare. And what we learned from that was that, you know, it's actually scary to get an HIV test. What happens if you learn your status? If you are HIV positive, what do you do? The interesting thing about working at a public health organization is that there is actually something that you can do. There are medications to prevent the spread of HIV. It's called PrEP, but it turns out that our community didn't know about that. And so that was an interesting nugget to, to pull. Another thought is that actually they're being discriminated against with healthcare workers. Many healthcare workers didn't want to talk to LGBTQIA people. They're very rude. They're very nasty. And so then it's, ah, that's another issue that we have to figure out. And so what this led us to do, and this took a very long time to make happen, because, again, it's public health researchers and game designers who traditionally do not work with one another, coming together and trying to build a shared language and at creating a game to hopefully get them into the clinic. And so the way that we did this is we had them, we, we pulled off of role-playing games. We said, what if we created three characters that represent the different fear that community members have, fear of knowing your status, fear of interacting with healthcare uh, professionals, and what does it look like to navigate your space and interact with people and talk to them on the phone while maybe avoiding going to get an HIV test and you at playing this character, helping them to realize, hey, you need to get over your own fear, and you should still go and get tested because there are things that you can do. And so this game is called The Test. A lot of the games that I work on are prototypes, and they're designed for studies. So unlike some of the games at like Electronic Arts or 2K that you can just buy at like your GameStop, most of my games exist only within the lab itself, usually funded by organizations like the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation where they're paying money for this organization to build this small prototype and then test it in the community and see how people respond. So, yeah.
0: I, I, I do have a question, though, on what you just mm-hmm. said. So when it's a prototype and when you launch it into the community and you start to see that success, what's usually then the next step there?
2: When designing these educational games, what we had to do was break up our process into kind of two steps. One, as we design these educational games, we had to go into the community and test and iterate and get feedback while it's still in development. This is just the game design process, right? Any game developer will always play test their game to see if it's even interesting, engaging, fun, whatever word you want to use. And so here we need to see if it's even engaging, right? If the people that we're designing it for, are you even going to play it? So that's one thing that we're looking for. If the games are supposed to impart some form of knowledge. We'll also actually do preliminary uh, surveys to see if there is any form of knowledge acquisition. If it's not working, then we have to go back and we have to change the content, even if it's fun, because our game is designed for a serious educational purpose, not just for entertainment. So we have to bend towards education, learning objectives, more so than fun and engagement.
1: Very cool. Uh, Ashon. I want to get back to something that you alluded to a little earlier on, mm-hmm. the intersection between the lab's mission and also reaching your audiences and educating them. There was a quote that you had. I'm going to quote this. Instead of constantly relying on books, videos, or lectures to educate people, we can create game-like experiences that are more like sandboxes, end mm-hmm. quote. What did you mean by this?
2: So at the Western Game Lab, we're inspired by many game theorists who are in the space trying to think through what are the affordances of games? What makes them different from books or video games or these lectures? And what we know is that games offer this ability to give people agency. Games are one of the only mediums where a player has to enact control over some character in the game or mouse over something in order for the game to move forward, which is interesting, right? It becomes a very active experience. It creates multiple learning opportunities as well, right? Because you have a movement-based aspect, video, sound, all these things that can enable people to learn such that You can actually put the player in control of what they want to learn. It's very much like you playing around in a sandbox. What do you want to do? Do you want to build a castle? Do you want to dig a hole? Do you want to go and bring another person into this space? Games have the ability to give players the control, give players the action of what they would like to do um, and take it from there. Excellent.
1: And you've been working on game design generally since you've graduated. You mentioned one of your favorites there. So we'll give you a chance to open it up here and tell us a little bit more about some of your other favorite games you've worked on and what their impact has been.
2: Absolutely. So some of my favorite games that I've worked on are these games called alternate reality games. These are what we call transmedia games. This means that Basically, you have a story that takes place over multiple mediums. So like a TV show, if you're watching it on TV and that's it, right? A video game, it's screen-based, that's it. But with a a transmedia narrative, you have this story taking place maybe on Instagram and some videos are happening on Instagram. And then that might move you to Twitter because a, a person is tweeting about a phenomenon and you're trying to figure out what that means. And it says that you should meet a person at a very particular location. You go to that actual physical location and you might actually be able to interact with a person who is a character in this game and you can talk to them and interact with them like a real regular person. And so that's what we mean by transmedia experience. And I love them because they're at that intersection of the real world becomes the game space. And so some of the games that I've worked on at the Western Game Lab include a game called Terrarium. We created this game in 2019, and this was an orientation game, getting all of the first years on campus acclimated to U Ush- Chicago as a culture. And how can you actually build community before they even get on campus? How can we also get a really smart group of people to start thinking about large scale real world problems? And so terrarium is a game that not only tries to again, build community, but get people to start thinking about climate change and how it's actually an interdisciplinary problem and requires interdisciplinary solutions because most people think it's just a scientific issue, right, oh, the scientists will solve that. but there are so many different ways that you can change people's minds and attitudes and, and feelings, and you can do that through art. So how can we bring all of these students together to start thinking about uh, these problems? We created this elaborative narrative at the Western Game Lab, created a shadow organization called the Forecast Lab, where actual real faculty from UChicago, from the history department, the computer science department, English department, all talked about getting communication from the future. And that the future was not looking good. This is 30 years in the future. This is year 2049. And we need to recruit students on campus to help us figure out how to reset our future. And so we were able to get students to form teams to interact with actual characters that we locked in a room. We used Twitch to pretend as though we were communicating from the future and had our players on Twitch interact with these people and help them understand what their future is, understand how they can even escape this room that they're in and reset the future. And we had all these kind of climate change quests for them to go on as well. Yeah, that was like one of my favorite games, specifically because we also had them at the, after the kind of narrative aspect of it, had them go and work on what we call the Futures Design Challenge. And this is where they worked with their teams to actually pose new ideas of how they would solve climate change. One group created this app that was gamified that would track energy usage in their house. Another group thought about using bioluminescent algae to start lighting cities and how you could actually grow algae to do that. Another group created a cookbook, said, hey, if the way that we're going, there's a bunch of plants and animals that probably won't exist anymore. So you actually need to change how cooking works. Here's a cookbook that would exist in 2049 because the bees don't exist. You have no honey. Here's what you need to do. It was a very artistic approach. So yeah, there's just so many different aspects to that, that it just really, it really spoke to me, especially because as a designer, I'm setting up a context for people to go out and make change. So it's different from saying, Hey, play my game. Here's the answer as most educational games are designed, here's an answer. It's black or white, yes or no. But here in alternate reality games, you're creating a context for people to go out and try and figure out what they think the problem is. And they're going out and creating their own solutions. And we get to see those solutions, which is really magical.
0: That is fascinating, truly fascinating. Obviously, you're you're at, University of Chicago, right? Can you talk about the impact of the students that you're actually working with? I imagine this work has changed their lives. It's not just you and your colleagues who are working on these games, but you're bringing in students to work on them and to gain their input and to actually see them put their game into motion.
2: Absolutely. So all of the games that we work on in the lab, not only are we working with faculty, but we're working with undergraduate and graduate students at UChicago, Chicago. So if our undergraduate students, they've never created a game before and they're like, I really want to create a game around rhetoric and and how you can change people's minds to get them on your side when talking about climate change. We have five students who wanted to create a game like this. And I'm like, OK, how long do you think that's going to take you? It's going to take you three weeks to design this game. You've never used this game engine before. Fantastic. I love it. Let's try it. Let's run this experiment and see how that works for you. Sometimes things work. Sometimes things don't. For these five students, it worked out beautifully. Um, They created this game called Fungi. And you're basically playing as a mushroom who was living in a forest, but it's getting too hot. Climate change is just ruining your life. And so you have to go and talk to humans, convince them that you have a lot of harm that's happening to you. And we need to go and take down corporations who are not doing their part in terms of climate change. And I'm like, fantastic, great, I love it.
1: That's amazing experience for them, for you to teach them and for them to learn hands-on. Unbelievable. Were you a gamer when you were growing up?
2: <laughs> Absolutely, oh my God. Uh, it a,
1: seems obvious, but read, you know, it's still a good question. <laughs> it's, it's a great
2: question. I think people are always surprised at like, how much of a gamer i really was i started playing games when i was 11. my first console was a super nintendo but like my real console that i owned was a playstation one my dad he worked so hard to go to best buy and find me one like bless this man (laughs) and i have been hooked on games ever since primarily played a lot of japanese role-playing games so your Final Fantasies, your Legend of Dragoon, I don't know if anyone knows that game, or like Xeno Gears. those are like the games that really inspired me the most because they're so narrative heavy, and had really weird worlds that you can interact with. Oh, such a huge gamer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I gotta say, so I grew up, I played video games like a lot of us. But I was horrible. I'm still horrible to this day. (laughs) I remember I played Madden. I played uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. I played the original Nintendo. And I was just bad for whatever reason. I don't know about you, Ross.
1: I I was, I think, equally as bad. I had a couple of games that I would get hooked on. Mostly like you, Jared, the sports games. I remember the original 8-bit Nintendo, uh, Tech Mobile, Super Tech Mobile, whatever the baseball game was. But then also like puzzle games, just Tetris like simple ones like that.
2: I was the friend who had all the games and I was trying to convince all of my friends to just become gamers, especially my female friends, because it was really just like me and then a bunch of dudes, which was fine until it wasn't, Um, especially around fighting games. That's when it got contentious because I was good Mm -hmm. and they were not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I digress. I, I started to play a lot of PC games, The Sims, Managed to get all my female friends hooked on The Sims. Very proud of that. Slowly started to move them into getting their own consoles. It was a good time. Good time.
1: So it's a good shift into the next question then. So as a lover of games, what made you take the route of creating games that serve this role, this higher purpose for society, as opposed to just designing games and being involved with some company that makes them for pure entertainment?
2: Yeah, it actually came from a fear of mine a fear of being different from the norm in the space. There's that fear of of this anxiety of what it would be for me as a Black woman to enter the industry, knowing that there are not a a lot of people who look like me. There's also this idea that the game industry seems like it's built to last, and I've always been interested in doing things that were a little bit weirder. I've played a lot of video games in my time, And after a while, they start to become very similar. And of course, there are differences. Like I know the difference between Call of Duty and Battlefield, even down from the controls. But still just at a high level, it's a first-person shooter where you're shooting people in the face. You can duck. You can throw grenades. Okay. What other things could you do in the game industry? And going to a non-traditional game space felt like a way to explore that. And then the the third aspect of that is there's something about working at a university where you're going to be producing more folks to go into the game industry. Perhaps my way to change the industry that I would love to enter into one day is to help produce the better people. People who are more thoughtful about game design, game mechanics, people who understand that. Diversity and inclusion is important in all aspects of that. And then they'll go into their game studios or they'll create new game studios and we can slowly change the industry that way.
0: Yeah. I want to touch on that a little bit, especially with Black women like yourself in the industry. How do we really make more of a change and get more Black women in the industry? What needs to be done? What would you like to be see done?
2: Absolutely. I have tried to become the change that I wanted to see in the world. It's the reason why I do talks like this or a lot of public events, because I have never interacted with any other woman in the game industry when I was growing up. Now, being here in Chicago, there are actually a lot more women, a lot more people of color, which is very exciting. But growing up, I saw no one who looked like me. When going to Penn State, my first computer science class was a C++ class in the computer science department. And there was no one who looked like me. In fact, everyone actually already knew how to program. And so then I felt like the odd one out because I'm like, I don't know what pseudocode is. So I'm like typing the pseudocode in, following the instructions. And then the TA is no, that's fake code. And I'm like, why would you give me fake coat? I don't know the difference, what's (laughs) happening here. So these are like my experiences of, I've always loved technology and my parents and family always made me feel comfortable saying I can accomplish anything. But then the world shows me that there aren't other people who look like me. And then I'm like, is that actually true? So the first thing is that I just wanna keep doing talks like this to let people know, hey, if you don't see people who look like you, you should try and be that person for the next generation, step one. But I think changing the industry, it's going to be hard. It's an uphill battle. And the reason why is because of people who are in power and even people who are nice don't necessarily realize the power that they hold or what they will have to give up and giving up power and giving up space is hard and I'm sorry, it will be hard, but if you really care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you'll take the time to really listen to the hard truths that Black, Brown, Indigenous people are saying, and it sucks, it will absolutely suck. You might cry, but that it is life. You'll have to suck it up and figure out what's the best way to move forward and partner and ally and deal with those hard truths, the hard truths that people of color have been dealing with for a long time. The ideas of you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. Like i worked really hard, my sister works really hard, but sometimes we're not compared to the same level of people who haven't done as much work, white women, white men. So yeah, it's, it requires some deep listening and really a willingness to give up power. And it's gonna be hard.
0: Thank you. Thanks yeah. Thanks for sharing that uh, That very honest perspective. It goes without saying, right, 2020 was a year like none other with the pandemic, the political atmosphere, Black Lives Matter. I'm curious to hear about your work over the past year.
2: Yeah, I've been doing two projects. One, I've been, again, working on alternate reality games. I've worked on this game called Echo and a Labyrinth. these two games, where our goal was to try and bring people together during COVID, as I'm sure you all have dealt with as well. And even like university campuses worldwide had a moment where they had to shut everything down and send all of their students home. And that was really jarring, especially for students who were graduating in 2020. Like it's really hard for them. And so what we were trying to do was create these games which would keep people playing together but still apart, socially distanced. And we, we created for a labyrinth, a way for them to navigate the campus through Twitch and they could control a person doing that, telling them go left, go right. Oh, here's Bond Chapel, here's the Rockefeller Chapel. And they can still experience the campus without being there. And then they can solve a series of quests and puzzles together.
1: wanted to get your thoughts on the popular first-person shooter games or violent games. I feel like this has been a a bit of a criticism of uh, a subsection of the industry for decades now. The games influencing aggressive behavior, encouraging violence, especially with younger kids. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that as it stands.
2: Yeah, I'm sort of like over the whole violence and video games thing like we have a lot of research that shows yes it does increase aggression but it doesn't necessarily make people violent but that's not the thing that does it and what I would love and this might be just me being like sassy I don't know but I would love the amount of money time and energy that is being devoted to violence in video games where it keeps showing over and over again that's not a thing that's happening and really start looking at new ways that we can maybe evaluate games and looking at their effects. How can we think about games in terms of situated learning experiences? Like, how are people learning in games? What is required for people to actually change their attitudes and behaviors around certain things? I would really just like money to be devoted towards that. We also have an organization like the World Health Organization saying there's video game addiction. Don't play games. But then the moment COVID happens, it's like, actually, everyone should socially distance and totally play more games. And it's moments like this where I'm just like, I feel we spend so much time trying to blame a medium that people don't understand for societal issues, as opposed to maybe just being responsible for those social issues and figuring out how to actually make those changes. If you're noticing an uptick in crime, maybe we should look at the intersection of poverty or like racial uh, injustices and see what are those social policies that have been enacted by cities to then look at that. Let's not blame Mortal Kombat. No one's out here doing fatalities like Scorpion. No, you can't do that. (laughs) Grand Theft Auto isn't teaching you actually how to hotwire a car. You press the triangle button and you just open it up and it works. Like Games don't actually do that. So what are games doing? Let's focus on that.
1: Excellent answer. I appreciate your insight there. So two part question here, what's next for the gaming industry? And then I'm also interested in the second part. What's next for you? Where would you like to go? Where do you see your career going in the next steps?
2: Yeah. I'm going just solely on my gut, my soul. Okay. Take all of this with a grain of salt. Sure. I feel like there are two things that are going to be happening. There will be more and more casual games on the market. There are so many more people who are playing games that like we cannot keep focusing on the air quote hardcore gamer right this this idea of that it's like the cisgender white man 18 year old and younger playing video games that is a subset of people who are playing games but that's not everyone and so as the gaming industry becomes more and more diverse we're going to see a plethora of games to support all of those different players and they will, by the hardcore game audience, will be viewed as casual. And I am so excited about it. Like I cannot wait to be able to talk to my mom about video games and and just play with her. And then we're like on the same page, as opposed to her asking you, Ashlyn, why are you running around this rock for the 20th time? And I have to be <laughs> like, mom, I'm actually doing something important. Don't call me out like this. So I'm very excited for more and more casual games to happen and especially more games coming directly from China, which will be interesting. But also just in terms of technology, I know that everyone is very excited about VR, but there's something about augmented reality that I think is really compelling, especially because it doesn't require such a large weird device that you have to strap onto your face and a high powered device to be able to run said experience on your face. Augmented reality, the fact that most people have smartphones and they're connected to data, that will get you so many places. And the fact that you can use this and overlay information onto your screen, whether you decide to create a virtual experience or overlay it on the real world, there's so many possibilities that will open up just from that, not even just game experiences, but all sorts of technology-based experiences. I think that honestly will be the future. What's for me? That's a really good question. I'm honestly surprised that I have been at a university for as long as I have. My first year of working at a university, I honestly immediately wanted to Go back to industry because I had no idea what people were talking about. There are people with PhDs talking about all these different philosophers, and I'm just like, I have no idea who these people are. I was an IT major and I failed to take a philosophy class. I should have thought about that. Oh my God, I just took an art class. What's happening? So, you know, the fact that I'm here, I feel like it, it allows me to stay in a weird space and keep interacting with weirder and weirder people. I don't know if I'll ever leave. I'll say a university setting completely, but I definitely see continuing to work on weirder and stranger, more difficult games, trying to think about a game that focuses on like racism and capitalism, like I haven't played too many games that focus on that. And I foresee myself continuing to work with my great colleague, Patrick Jagoda on these types of games. What does it mean to create a game around democracy? What does it mean to create a game that focuses on AI, but especially around machine learning and bias of, of developers? There's so much to explore here that I, I don't see myself leaving anytime soon until I do. Who knows? I'm along for the journey right now.
0: We'll be following that journey. We'll be following what's happening with the game industry. But quite honestly, I'm more curious where you're going next because it's quite exciting. We are actually going to shift over and put you in the Lions Then, brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride and reminisce about your time at Penn State. Just remember, when you want to show off your Penn State Pride, visit lions-pride.com for the latest and greatest apparel and merchandise.
1: Ashlyn, we've loved hearing about your really awesome journey to where you are today at the Western Game Lab and all this really cool work that we honestly had no idea what was going on. So thank you for, for sharing with us and your broader audience. We want to know how Penn State prepared you for this professional journey that you've been on so far.
2: Oh, absolutely. Going to Penn State, I have never actually worked on team projects before, like in high school, like I have one team project, but that was the kid who was like, step over. I will just do everything. You're going to get the A. It's going to be great. Penn state does not allow you to do that. Like these professors will call you out and be like, everyone has to present. Everyone has to bring their A game. And it was so stressful for me because I've never truly got team-based experience before also. Every single project that I've had, I had to do a presentation for and talk to an actual audience, also stressful. But it turns out that is actually what I've been doing for the past like eight years. Every single time I've been doing presentation after presentation, even in terms of me teaching in front of students, I've gotten so comfortable with it now that Penn State has really helped honestly with that. I'll also even say in terms of like programming, dig at the computer science department a little bit. Woo-woo IST, cuz that's where I uh, hung out at. It taught me actually how to teach people coding and knowing that not everyone is going to come from a CS background, a high school that has a like programming classes, but when I took my intro to java class and I realized actually how simple programming is not like it's chaotic at times, but it's not as difficult as I thought it was. And I just needed a very specific type of guidance. And my professor gave me that. It really helped me teach my students who are like, I don't know Unity, I don't know any coding. Am I gonna be a bad game developer? Actually, you're not gonna be a bad game developer. We're gonna start you actually with board game design because if you can write a rule set, you can understand any form of logic statement in programming, you're gonna be fine. And so that's really helped build up my empathy. And I wouldn't have gotten that if I didn't go to Penn State.
0: That's great. Toughest question of them all. Favorite memory at Penn State.
2: So actually my sister also went to Penn State. We actually overlapped at Penn State because when I was a senior, she was a, a sophomore. And I just remember being in like the West Commons, eating the cookies. I wonder, are those cookies still there? I really hope so.
1: Um, I think those they were good cookies. Yeah, those, those were great, great
2: cookies. Like it'd the best cookies.
1: It'd be a travesty if they weren't. Come on.
2: <laughs> I know. Like, hello. But just like being in the commons with her is like really late at night, eating cereal, eating cookies, all the things that we weren't allowed to do at home because our mom was really thinking about her health. Blessings to you, mom. However, It was just this moment of just like, I love this, like this community, the fact that people are here in their sweats, the fact that you can just yell, we are, and people are like Penn State. And I'm like, oh, yes, beautiful. The fact that I didn't know anything about football when I got to campus and people were gonna have to be like, here's what you need to know, because you need to know, this is what we do. And I'm like, yes, I've learned, okay. People are just so friendly and kind. At Penn State, so those are some of my favorite memories. Uh, I love it.
0: That's great. You have to give your sister, since she's a Penn Stateer, you have to give her a shout out and say what she's doing.
2: Oh yeah, so my sister Alicia Sparrow. So she was a film uh, major, and so she's now actually in the publishing industry. She actually also works at U Chicago. Woo woo. And so she works primarily on academic books, political science, and law. So she gets all these amazing. Book projects that she has, and she's reading them. And she has actually made me more knowledgeable about politics and law all because of her work. So that's what she's been doing for the past eight years as well.
0: Yeah. I love it. Sparrows, they go to Penn State and then they
1: wind up at U chicago together, too.
2: You know, birds of a feather.
1: I like what mm. you did there. Thank a- you. A- 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 Ashlyn, if you could visit with yourself as an 18 year old, coming to Penn State, not knowing what lies ahead, what advice would you share with yourself?
2: <sighs> so. <laughs> I remember when stepping onto campus for the first time, and I know that I think a lot of college students feel this, maybe, I don't know. It's this feeling of, you've done a lot of work in high school, you've worked hard to get here, and you are the smart kid. But then once you step onto campus, actually, there are 40,000 people who are also the smart kid. So then it's the question of, am I even special? What do I even have? And it, you're fine. You're actually fine. You're, you, yes, you are smart. You do not need to compare yourself to other people. You all are smart. Just because other people have the same similar gifts doesn't mean that you need to take anything away from person. Like you have to have it all. No, it's fine. You're smart, they're smart, we're all smart. In actuality, and I know this is gonna sound weird, But nobody cares. And that is like free. Like Nobody cares. It's okay. Nobody's going to think about what it is that you're doing. So live your best life and make things happen.
0: That's fantastic advice. I love it. Along those advice lines, when someone's considering Penn State, what do you tell them? Why should they go there?
2: So for me, and I'm comparing this actually to UChicago because UChicago is really a small campus, they have more grad students than they do undergraduate students, which is interesting. I love Penn State because of how large it is. Be- and because there are so many people, you can absolutely find a group of people who work for you. With 40,000 people, how could you not? Right? There are game design clubs, dancing clubs. I was for a little bit attached to an anime club. Whatever it is that you You can find it because it's a small little city. It's a small little town. You can also, if you're tired of people, can go to the other side of campus. And the people that you typically interact with are not there because there's 40,000 people walking around on campus. So that's one reason why I recommend just like the fact that you can be as big or as large or as small as you would like to be. And it's great. But also like academically, like. The the fact that there are so many courses that you can choose from, I actually regret only focusing on like the tech courses. Don't get me wrong. I am a tech nerd, hardcore. But now I'm like, oh man, the humanities and like the philosophy department. Why didn't I take any of those classes? But they exist there, right? There, There are way more classes and way more options at Penn State because it's such a large university than there are at some other like smaller universities. Also, you could go to West Commons, get some cookies if they still exist. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Everything you said is so true. I agree. And lastly, how do you feel most connected to the university these days?
2: So I have recently started to become more and more connected to the university, especially since One, I've updated my mailing address. So now I get the magazines about Penn State. So I'm very excited, especially IST. But I've also been doing a lot more work with the IST college, talking to some of the undergraduates there. Again, even when I was an undergraduate, there were a few women in IST. I was in that club, but there weren't any Black women. There were, if I remember, two Black dudes in my graduating class. And so it was just like the three of us like chilling like one, like the fact that I'm seeing more and more black and brown people in IST is fantastic. And so just continuing to build the connections and saying, Hey, I'm a resource. Ask me all the things about what it means to do work when you graduate. And I will be 100% honest because I didn't have anyone to do that for me.
0: Amazing. This has been a fascinating conversation like so many others before, but when I think about you and your journey And I hear the name Ashlyn Sparrow after speaking with you. I would say what comes to mind, the road less traveled. Mm -hmm. And that road less traveled has a very big impact on society, but also other people. And not only are you taking that road less traveled, I think you're leading on that road less traveled. And Ross and I certainly wish you a lot of continued success. And we look forward to also following that journey and being on that road, less traveled with you and hopefully getting more black and brown men and women into this industry, because you are a shining example of someone who has had that success and other people should follow on that road along with you. And, we always end with, we
2: are Penn state. <laughs>
0: Lion Legacy is a Baruda production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.